Well, good morning, church, for all of you gathered in this room, and for those of you who are worshiping online with us this morning, a special good morning, welcome. As we begin our service, I'm going to invite everyone in the room. Let's all stand together. While we can't sing, we continue to, to stand. We can raise our hands. Um, if you feel as we kind of continue to worship with music, if you'd like to sit down as we kind of go through our, our music time together, by all means, feel free to do that. But let, let's allow the psalmist, Psalm 99, call us to worship this morning. Psalm 99 says, The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. And for us this morning, exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Holy is your name. Receive our worship, Father, this morning.
Praise the Lord. Father, what beautiful words, what beautiful truth that you are here with us. Lord, in these times, we need you, Lord. We need you. Thank you for your faithfulness, for your goodness, for the power of your word to be able to remind us and strengthen us with that. By your spirit, through the sacrifice of your son, we can boldly come into your presence where your spirit is, there's freedom and joy. So we pray all of these things in the matchless saving name of our King, our matchless King, our everything, here with us here this morning. We pray in his name, in the name of Jesus. The church says amen together. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning to each of you. It is great to be back at Redemption Bible Chapel. I invite you to take God's Word now and turn with me to the book of Job. This is a little different, isn't it? What are you, one-third capacity? No singing? You all looking like you should be holding up a stagecoach in the Wild West? Uh, but I'll tell you this, um, it's a lot better than the last time I was here in May. When I was here in May, I was standing up here all by myself preaching to an audience of two. Uh, my wife, Allison, was there in the front row, and is it Tim? Tim was back in the sound booth making sure everything was running smoothly. So although this setup, it isn't ideal, it is certainly getting better. And brothers and sisters, please remember, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. Have you found the book of Job, chapter 19? Follow along, please, as I begin reading in verse 25. Just three verses, 25, 26, 27. And here Job, as he cries out, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. I have had some stirring, fascinating, interesting conversations of late. Some of them have been over a social distanced coffee. Some have been on Zoom, Microsoft Teams. Some simply 
email exchange. And uh, some of these conversations have been in the forefront of my mind. And three conversations in particular. Uh, the first conversation was with a man I'm going to call the sufferer. The sufferer. And I'm not going to get into the details with you, except to say he has a, oh, he has a lot on his plate right now. He is going through a great deal, and he is facing a Job-like experience in terms of some of the personal loss and the accompanying pain and anguish in which he has now found himself. And there might very well be a sufferer here this day. And if I have another opportunity to speak to him, this is the text I'm going to go to. Uh, this is a text that can bring some stability into the life of the sufferer. His life, perhaps your life this day, this week, some stability, immovability. Uh, back in June, we decided to plant a pear tree in our backyard, there's a bit of a backstory. I like my neighbor who lives behind us, but I don't want to see my neighbor who lives behind us. You know what that's like, right? I like him, I got no problem with him, but I just want to kind of block the view. And so we decided we would plant a pear tree, and I did all of the, the research and everything else, and went out and bought this semi-dwarf pear tree, and planted it, and discovered that I'm supposed to drive an iron stake to the northwest of this pear tree, which I did and hammered it in with a hatchet. I don't think I'm ever going to get that thing out of there. And then fasten the pear tree to that iron stake so that it will not move. And sure enough, I think it was last weekend, we had some pretty good gusts of wind, which actually blew down another tree in my neighbor's backyard, which means I'm going to have to plant another tree because there's now another opening I want to close and hide from view. But his tree came down, and there was this little pear tree in my backyard, immovable, stability. And what we have in Job chapter 19, verses 25, 26, 27, is something we can hold on to, something that can give us that staying power in the midst of suffering. The second individual I'm thinking of, I'm going to call a worrier. He's a fellow as well, and this uh, brother in the Lord, um, he's got a lot on his mind. Uh, lost his job, and uh, as you can imagine, some of the problems that come along with that, some of the issues in his life, some of his struggles, and he's spending a great deal of time wondering about what he's going to do, what comes next. And he is in the grip of worry. You know where that word comes from, right? Worry. We have a dog at home, and once in a while she likes to get a hold of her plastic bone, and she gnaws on that thing endlessly. In old English, so we would say in modern English, she's gnawing on her bone, right? In old English, they would say she's worrying the bone. That's where the word worry comes from. It is a repetitive, mindless action. Worrying. And this brother is really worrying as he concerns, wrestles with what is coming. And there might very well be an individual in that same boat with us this morning or perhaps watching at home that, um, yeah, you're worrying. It could be this virus thing, right? And uh, enough already. When's it going to end? It could be September. You're sending kids back to school or are you sending kids back to school? Maybe you're going back to school to teach. And you got a lot on your mind. It could be an employment crisis. It could be just navigating all of this social distancing and alienation from family and friends and neighbors. Who knows what? It could be the newspaper headlines. It could be the we scandal. It could be all of this confusion going on with our cousins south of the border. Who knows? Headline after headline, circumstance after circumstance, situation after situation. You're having just this difficult time getting your mind around it. And you are worrying. Well, here's the text for you. And if I have an opportunity to engage with this friend again, these are the verses I'm going to direct him to. Because in these verses, oh, we find such clarity. Clarity in the midst of the chaos. Clarity in the midst of the confusion. And clarity in the midst of the worry and the anxiety. My laptop wasn't working last week. I couldn't log on to my email. And I couldn't open some of the applications. 
I reached out to a friend of mine who was very uh, tech-savvy, computer-savvy, and he said, here's what you need to do. Empty these caches, delete this, delete that, and then just turn the thing off. Hit the reset button and start it again. And ever since I have rebooted that laptop, it has worked like a dream. You know, as sometimes as Christians, all we have to do is hit the reset button. Our minds and our lives get so cluttered and we are filled with so many things that cause anxiety and worry. And if we can just take the time, put it all out of our minds for a moment this morning, come to this passage of Scripture, hit reset. Oh, the truths we find in this portion of God's Word will bring such clarity. And then the third individual I've been dialoguing with of late is actually my neighbor. lives right beside us, and he's not a believer. And uh, Roman Catholic, raised Roman Catholic, but has an Irish Roman Catholic. But he hasn't darkened the door of the church since he was 12 years of age. And uh, I was able to give him a book a couple of weeks ago. And he shared with me last week that he's actually reading it. And he's actually enjoying it. And I am anticipating further conversations with him. And as soon as the moment arises, this is the text I want to take him to. And these are the truths I want to make sure he hears from me. Now, you might not be a believer. Someone watching at home, um, you might not be a believer. As someone who will watch this video as it goes out there on the net at some point down the road who isn't a believer. Uh, these verses are for you. And what I am going to declare from these verses in the Word of God, and I know this might sound like an exaggeration to you, but believe you me, it is no exaggeration. This is the most important thing you're ever going to hear in your life. It is the most important thing you are ever going to hear in your life. So we have the sufferer. It might be you. We have the worrier. That might very well be you as well. And we have the unbeliever before us as we come now to Job 19, 25 through 27. And what I want us to notice are four articles of faith. Four articles of faith. Here is article number one, a promised redeemer. Look at what Job says, the outset of verse 25, for I know. Now recall, Job is in the midst of a trying time. Job is in the midst of, of a chaotic time. He has lost all of his possessions. He has lost his children. He has lost his health. And in the midst of unimaginable suffering, he is wrestling with an incomprehensible God. In the last decade, early 1900s, Amy Carmichael, perhaps that's a name with which you are familiar, Amy Carmichael, she was a missionary in India for 56 years without a break, without a furlough. Off she went, India, 56 years. You can imagine the struggle she encountered and the suffering she experienced laboring in that part of the world and laboring as a Christian seeking to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only did she encounter unimaginable suffering as a minister of the Lord, but she, in, she knew life suffering. Uh, she lost her father. Her father died when she was just a youngster. She suffered most of her life from, is it neuralgia? Forgive me if I've pronounced that wrong, neuralgia. It's sort of an ailment of the nerves whereby she was in constant pain. She suffered a severe fall at one point in life and actually ended up spending the last 20 years of her life bedridden. And as she reflected on it all, she stated the following. I cannot recall a single explanation of trial. We are entrusted with the unexplained. We wrestle with an incomprehensible God. We wrestle with the mystery of providence. And that is where Job finds himself having lost everything, never receiving an explanation from the Almighty but being exhorted to trust in the one who is incomprehensible. 
And as he rests in an incomprehensible God in the midst of unimaginable suffering, what does he know? What does he hold on to for all he's worth? There it is, the first article of, ver- of, of faith, the outset of verse 25. I know, I know, I know that my Redeemer lives. I want you to notice a couple of things in that statement. They are tremendous. The first is this, that word Redeemer. A Redeemer is a rescuer. A redeemer is one who comes and saves, one who comes and rescues. Rescues from what? And the Scripture makes it clear, and Job was perfectly aware of this, rescues from sin and the consequences of sin. The Apostle Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. He adds to that, there is none who understands No, not one. There is none who is good. No, not one. There is none who seeks after God. No, not one. We stand in need of a Redeemer. We stand in need of a Savior. We stand in need of a Rescuer because we are by nature captured to, enslaved to our sin. You imagine the thickest chain the darkest cell, the deepest dungeon that you can possibly imagine. Have you got it? It pales in comparison to our bondage to sin and the hold it has on us. This really came home to me. I mean, I've known it since I was a youngster. I had heard it preached and proclaimed since I was a young boy, but it really came home. It was over 20 years ago when Allison and I were living and ministering in Portugal, and I was reading a book by James Montgomery Boyce, preacher in the States. He's with the Lord now. And in that book, James Montgomery Boyce, he gives the following illustration. He says, look, I want you to imagine a lion. Have you got it? A lion, not the Lion King, not some cartoon. A lion, a ferocious lion. And I want you to imagine that this lion hasn't eaten for two weeks, and it's sitting in a cage. So this ferocious, famished lion, you swing open the door of that cage, and you quickly throw in this big basket full of fruit and vegetables. So there's zucchinis in there, and tomatoes, and apples, and watermelon, and everything else. Here's the question. Can the lion eat that fruit and vegetables? Can he? Yes, he can. He's physically able. There's nothing stopping him from eating the fruit and vegetables. Now, here's the question. Will he eat the fruit and vegetables? No. Why not? Because he is a carnivore by nature. Now you open up the gate on that cage and you throw in a bucket full of lamb chops and pork and meat and beef, rotten meat, whatever it is, and it goes, and that lion will go straight for it and devour it without a moment's hesitation. Here is the comparison, friends. Here is the comparison. We have free will by nature. We are free to do whatever we want. Our problem by nature is this. By nature, we are inclined to sin. By nature, we are lovers of self. By nature, our basic operating principle as human beings is this, selfish ambition. And even those things we do that are good and pleasing and noteworthy and acceptable in the sight of others, they flow from a polluted fountain. Therefore, they are unacceptable in the sight of God. We are enslaved to sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good, no, not one. There is none who understands, not one. There is no one who seeks after God, not one enslaved to sin. We stand in need of a Redeemer, and this Redeemer's name is Jesus Christ. He is the Rescuer. And three tremendous truths that we must grasp concerning this Redeemer. Number one, He became one with us in our 
humanity. The Son of God become man. He stripped himself of the robes of his glory and covered himself with the rags of our humanity. The God-man. Truth number two. He is able to pay our debt and purchase our inheritance. How? He lived the life we were required to live, but couldn't. And he died the death that we were required to die. And by his life and by his death, he stands as our redeemer, one who is able to rescue us from the penalty of sin and to break the power of sin. The third truth is this. He is compelled by love for us, whereby he makes us one with him. His purity becomes ours, however filthy we might be. And his righteousness becomes ours, however sinful we might be. There's an old hymn. Here's a stanza. There is a name I love to hear. You remember that one, some of you? There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its worth. It sounds like music in my ear, the sweetest name on earth. It tells me of a Savior's love who died to set me free. It tells me of his precious blood, the sinner's perfect plea. There is a name I love to hear, the name Jesus Christ, my Redeemer. The second thing I want you to notice in that statement is that personal pronoun, possessive, my Redeemer. A preacher of old, he put it as follows. Write this down, jot it down, try to remember it, dwell on it later. The sweetness of the gospel lies in a personal pronoun. That's tremendous. The sweetness of the gospel lies in a personal pronoun. I know my Redeemer lives. That's the first article of faith. Here's the second article of faith, a promised return. Pick it up again, verse 25. I know that my Redeemer lives. Okay, a promised Redeemer. Stay with Job. What does he then declare? And at the last, he will stand Upon the earth, a promised return. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 that he who descended, that is the Son of God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, he who descended is the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And there he sits presently at the right hand of his Father on high, surrounded by heavenly splendor and reigning in super sovereignty over all nations, all creatures, all peoples, all events, all circumstances, all enemies, and all centuries. And my friend, never forget it, he's coming again. That means things will not continue as they presently are. We don't remind ourselves of this near often enough. This world is not going to continue as it is. This is not some sort of endless cycle or endless loop. This is not meaningless, nor is it purposeless. Just as the Son of God broke into time, at the time of his incarnation, he is going to break into time yet again definitively. And at that time, that hour, he will establish a new heavens and a new earth. He is coming again. Oh, it is the darkness of night that makes the dawn so uplifting. It is the torment of pain that makes relief so comforting. It is the cold of winter that makes spring so reviving, invigorating. And it is the loneliness of separation that makes reunion so encouraging. 
he is coming again. The second article of faith, a promised return. Here is the third article of faith, a promised resurrection into verse 26. And after, now notice very carefully, very carefully Job's language. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, after I'm dead and buried, that's how we would put it today, after I'm dead and buried, after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. You see, our hope as Christians is not some eternal, ethereal, disembodied, spiritual state. Our hope as Christians is the resurrection from the dead. It is the day in which the Lord Jesus does return, and he returns with the shout of the archangel, he returns with the trumpet blast, and the dead in Christ are raised. And yes, our souls are already with him. They're with him at the moment of death, the moment we depart this life. Our souls to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and our souls are with him. But what we are longing for, what we are anticipating, what is the great hope of the Christian and of the Christian faith is this. It is the resurrection that we will rise from the dead, body and soul reunited, perfected and glorified into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ after my skin, says Job, has been thus destroyed. Yet in my flesh I shall see God. You know, the older I get, and I'm not that old, but I'm getting older, the older I get, the more precious the resurrection and the hope of the resurrection becomes to me. I can't imagine living life. I can't do it. I can't imagine living life without the hope of the resurrection. I, I, I cannot, and again, if you're an unbeliever, I, I'm thrilled you're here and pleased you're here and seeking to proclaim the truth of God in love to you. But I can't get into your mind. I don't know how you get through your day. I really don't. This meaningless, pointless life where anything can happen from one moment to the next. Oh, the hope of the resurrection. I can't imagine living life without it. The older I get. I know I'm getting older. Do you know how I know I'm getting older? There came a time just a few years ago, it really happened one day to the next, where I realized I didn't see, through li I didn't see life through the lens of what's coming anymore in this life. I started to see life through the lens of what had already happened. Now, some of you are nodding your heads, you old-timers old like me. You know exactly what I'm saying. Some of you younger ones, I just lost you because it's all future. It's all in front of you. Yep, it's all what's going to happen next down the road. It's what's coming. What comes after that? There we go. And then you reach this point where you're no longer, you're no longer looking ahead in terms of this life. You find you spend your time looking back. It's what is past. And you realize just how quickly this life has gone. And you realize that time, you, can't, you struggle to get your mind around it. Things that happened 20 years ago seem like they happened yesterday. Things that happened 30 years ago, like they just happened a couple days ago. And it's unsettling as you seek to come to grips with your finitude. And the fact that this life, you're here one day and you're gone tomorrow. And I spend a lot of time thinking on Moses' admonition that we're to, the psalmist's admonition that we're to number our days. Oh, Lord, give me a heart of wisdom. Give me a heart of wisdom to number my days, to know how quickly this life passes and to live it in the hope and the expectation of the resurrection and the life that is coming. You know, we, we, think, we think it's all about the now. I struggle with this. We think we're kind of at the center of reality, and the universe is revolving around us, right? 
I remember this shock to my system years ago. I was in Edinburgh, Scotland, and I was researching some of my ancestors, trying to figure out who they were. And I got back as far as the late 1700s. All these baptismal records. And some of you are into Ancestry.com. You're with me. You know exactly what I'm saying. And it's kind of fascinating to get these wedding records and funeral records and baptism records and birth records. And you piece it all together and you can map out a little bit of your ancestry. And I got all the way back to 1700s on my father's side. And I have all these names. And you know what I know about them beyond my grandfather? You know what I know? Name, date of birth, when they were married. That's it. I'm sure when they walked the earth, they thought they were the center of the universe, like I think we think we're the center of the universe. Friends, we are here today. We are gone tomorrow. And guess what? I don't want to burst your bubble. But two generations from now, they will not remember us. They won't remember us. You know, the grandkids, the great grandkids, they might have a picture of you, right? No, it won't be an oil painting portrait over the mantle of the fireplace. It won't be. It'll be that little picture, maybe your wedding photo in the collage, on the wall, up the stairs. You know, that's sort of the space. You don't know what else to do with it. So you get those sort of pictures and collage and you put it there. It's one step from the attic, folks. <laughs> one step from the attic. That's us. Oh, get with it. You are a mist. I'm a mist here today. And we are gone tomorrow. I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, because this life is but the prelude to what is coming, the new heavens and the new earth. This is the third article of faith, a promised resurrection. And here's the fourth and final article of faith, a promised reward. He's alluded to it right at the end of verse 26. I shall see God. In theological terms, we refer to that as the beatific vision. You remember the Beatitudes. The Lord Jesus spoke them. They're recorded in Matthew 5. Blessed are the pure in heart. Beatific blessing. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. It is the beatific, the blessed vision. He mentions it there. It's his hope at the end of verse 26. He expands on it in verse 27. Whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold. And not another. And as I think on this. As I meditate on this, and as this hope, this truth, this reality sinks in, embraces the affections of the heart, what is my response? My heart faints within me. Oh, the anticipation of what it will mean, resurrection, and in our flesh to see God, the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ and the final, ultimate, complete fulfillment of the promise of all promises. God has promised us so much in his word. It's all summed up. Do you realize that? In one promise. Do you know what it is? Here it is. I will be their God and they will be my people. It is the beatific vision that we will see him as he is in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Richard Baxter put it centuries ago, at that moment, that moment will be the beginning of eternal bliss as God's love eternally embraces us. I've been meditating of late on Christ's high priestly prayer in John 17. John 17. And there is, I mean, that, that is, John 17 is sweet, sweet, sweet to the soul. And there's a one statement in particular that I just, I haven't been able to get beyond it. The Lord Jesus is praying to his Father, and he utters the following. You loved me before the foundation of the world. You loved me before the foundation of the world. Why is that so significant? I'm going to stretch your brains here. Are you ready? Why is that so significant? 
We're moving beyond the foundation of the world, which means we're moving beyond the created order, the created realm. We are moving beyond time and space, and we are entering into one indivisible point in eternity, God, who is the great I Am. And the Lord Jesus says, you loved me there and then, before the foundation of the world. It is pointing to the Lord Jesus as the Son of God, and he is making one of the greatest, perhaps most important theological statements in all of Scripture. It is what? God is love by definition. Even before the foundation of the world, what was God doing? He was loving himself, Father, Son, and Spirit delighted in that mutual knowledge of one another, delighting in that mutual love one for another, and how encouraging this is for me. Because you see, if God, if God weren't triune, just pure monotheism, one monad, right? Just Father, but not uh, triune. We could never say God is love. Because who or what was he before the creation of the world? But in that single statement, we discover that our God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit, is love. Which means what? That his creation of the world was an expression of his love. That his plan of redemption is the outpouring of his love. That the Redeemer's work, when Christ gave himself at Calvary's cross, it was the outpouring and expression of his love. When the Father sent the Spirit, the Son sent the Spirit to indwell believers, it was the pouring out of that love into our hearts. And so what we have then as Christians, when we come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, we become the recipients of this cascading, if you like, of love. And this is our great hope. This is our great expectation. This is our great anticipation that in glory and in that state that is coming, that love will eternally embrace us. Oh, it is the promised reward. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he tells the following story. Have you ever heard of the man who had a bag of gold on board a ship? The ship was sinking. And he went down to his cabin, put as much gold as he could into a belt, and then fastened the belt around his waist. When he jumped for the lifeboat and missed it, he sank with the weight of his own gold, dragging him down. You see, his treasure was his ruin. What are we holding on to? What is our treasure? What is our great hope and expectation? When in heaven I see thy glory, when before thy throne I bow, perfected, I shall be like thee, fully thy redemption know, my Redeemer. Then shall hear me shout his praise. A promised Redeemer a promised return, a promised resurrection, and a promised reward. Those are my words, my word of counsel to the sufferer. Again, if I'm able to engage that young man again, this is where I'll take him. And maybe uh, I'm engaging you this day because of what you're going through. This is it, my friend, brother, sister, this is it. You want stability in the midst of that suffering. Hold on. Persevere. It's only for a moment. The day will dawn. The church is here. Brothers and sisters are at the ready. The gift of the Spirit and the gift of the Word are yours. And the assurance of your Father's love for you. And these great articles of faith, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. 
And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Oh, stability in the midst of the storm, in the midst of suffering. And to the worrier, here it is. It's all I've got for you. You really don't need any more. Hit the reset button. Such clarity, such perspective. And I'm engaging with so many, and I can only, and I've struggled with this myself, and I can only assume there are at least a handful here at Redemption Bible Chapel. You are sick of COVID-19. And you are sick of the social distancing, you're sick of the masks, and you just, when are things going to get back to normal, and you're chomping at the bit, and you can't believe what this has cost you, what it has cost you financially, relationally, just in terms of your mental health, and you can't believe some of the decisions that are made, you can't believe some of the inconsistencies, and you have your opinions on this, your opinion on that, and you're checking in and reading the headlines every day, and you're reading this, and you're reading that. Oh, my friends, get off social media. It'll help a lot. Shut her down. Facebook, Twitter, whatever. Just stop paying any attention to the headlines. Do what's expected of you with a cheerful attitude and outlook and hold on to what is important in the midst of the chaos. I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh... I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Such clarity. And to the unbeliever, and this is all I got for you, friend, you don't need anything more. This is the most important thing. I know a lot of things seem important, but they are trivial in comparison to this, my friend. This is the most important thing you will ever hear. Uh, you are a sinner. And God makes that abundantly clear in his word. But there is a redeemer. And God abounds in mercy. And I declare to you that where there is conviction for sin, he promises mercy. Amen. Where there is weariness for sin, he promises rest. And where there is repentance for sin, he promises forgiveness. And he extends this promise to all who come and all who approach him through his beloved son, the great redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our heavenly father, take now, we pray, your word and drive it home. May we have understanding. That's true enough, our Father. We do seek illumination. And we pray, too, that this word might sink deep into our hearts and take hold. We pray that by your Spirit, our hearts might be inclined to these truths. And we pray that your perfect will for us would be accomplished indeed. And we ask it for our good. We ask it for your glory. And we seek it in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Thank you.
doxology from the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time now and forever. And in Jesus name we pray these things. The church says amen. Amen. Go in peace. We'll see you next weekend.